0: morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancaus. I'm the teaching pastor here. Hey, before we get started on our sermon today, I just want to let you know right at the end of service, so after we finish with our last worship song, I have an important update for you. So you know, those of you who are like, I'm going to duck out, don't duck out. You're going to want to hear that. Plus, we have lunch today to help with our Difference Maker campaign. So drunken tacos, they're going to be great. But don't, don't scoot out if you don't have to, because I do want to update you on some important things about our community. Okay. That's like the public service announcement. Let's get down to business. So we have been doing this series called Reality Check, and today's our final week, and we're talking about real humility, real humility. And some of us know what real humility is, but most of us have had more experience with what's known as false humility, which often looks at as false modesty. And one of the most common ways we see false modesty is what's known as the humble brag. Who knows what a humble brag is? Few of you know what a humble brag is. Um, wake up, come on, all right. Uh, a humble brag is a self presentation strategy it 's where you want people to see all of your positive qualities and attributes without them resenting any of that so you 're trying to like put your best foot forward but seem like you know you're you 're humble at the same time you 're not too arrogant and um, there's there 's two types there 's two types of humble brags so the first one tends to be in the complaint form like oh it 's just so hard looking so young, I get carded everywhere I go you know it's so hard to be so popular or so skinny or so wealthy you know like oh poor you and then the other one comes as like uh, as more humility like i don't know why i always get put on the most important projects at work it's just you know i don't know why that always happens to me humble brag right so that's that's the humble brag and they the categories that we tend to do this in are like money and wealth or accomplishments or appearance or status or all that Here's the thing: no one embodies the humble brag better than one of my one of the characters from my favorite show, one of my favorite shows, The Good Place. If you haven't watched The Good Place, you should pick it up. It's great. But her name is Tahani, and I have a little bit of a compilation of her humble brags. That's a humble brag, right? And so social scientists have actually started doing research on the humble brag and what what our impact is with this. And so what they found is that people would actually, they like you better if you just outright brag than if you humble brag, right? So if you're just bragging, they like you way better. In fact, people trust you more, your perceived likability and your perceived competence go down in the eyes of others, when you humble brag and actually they would rather you just outright complain than to humble brag complain. And so when we, when we do this, we're doing it because we think it looks like humility. It looks like modesty. Modesty is taking what's great about me but making it a little bit less, cloaking it and so other people won't see that I think I'm so great. But this isn't really humility. When we fall into the humble brag, ultimately what happens is people like you less and they trust you less. So this is not real humility. So we're going to talk about what is real humility, and James actually gives us a whole new spin on what it means to be humble, what that really looks like. And so it's what's known as the great reversal, and he says this, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers and the little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. I have to tell you, James is just like one of those books where you're like, man, you're putting it like really well, but it doesn't make you feel very good. That's the truth. But what he's talking about here, what he's, he's using the word boast. And typically, this is a negative word. Right. Typically, this means to have an exaggerated opinion of yourself, to think, you know, to go out and and talk about how great you are. And, and normally, normally the scripture says to not do this. But there's another way that you can that you can um, translate this word, and it means to glory in something. And that's that's the context that James is using here to glory in something. But what he's telling us to glory in seems a little strange, because he's saying to those who are poor, the poor believers, those he's not. Let, let's just clear. be clear. He's not, like, um, glorifying poverty in general. He's saying those who are followers of Jesus, if and that word poor means to be in humble or lowly circumstances. So those who find themselves in humble or lowly circumstances should glory in that. Why? Why should they glory in that? Because they have an elevated status, is what he says. And then he says the rich should also glory, but not because they are rich and not because they are powerful. They should glory because of their humble status, this great reversal that, that wait a second, why would I boast, why would I glory in the fact that I don't have anything? What, what's going on there? And he says, ultimately, that real humility at the heart, what we see the, at the great reversal, we see the heart of real humility, which is perspective humility is all about perspective and he says it's all about having an eternal perspective because with with the poor there's this promise there's this eternal promise that in the end in god's economy everyone shares in all things that everything will be restored that you are actually considered higher than what the world may consider you in fact it echoes jesus's promise jesus says this and note this some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And he's talking about the end, when the kingdom of God comes. And some who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And he also says this, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. He says, the lowly are highly honored. They will be lifted up. All things will be restored to them. All things will be given to them. And so they should boast and glory in that because they have an eternal perspective that all things in the end will wash out and it will be made right. Okay. But then Jesus also gives a very stern warning around what it is if we begin to put our trust and our hope in our worldly status and our worldly riches. And he says this. He says, what sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only your happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. And what Jesus is saying is, if you have put all of your hope in your current status, in your current wealth, in your current power, it is going to, it's all going to fade away. It's all going to fade away, and you will be left sad. You will be left sad because that's where you put everything. And so both, both, those in lowly circumstances and those in high circumstances are called to see that, that wealth holds nothing in the eyes of death. It doesn't even hold a candle to it. Everyone will be brought to the same condition. The the poor will be brought up. The rich will be brought low. That's what he's saying. This is that the heart of real humility. It's about perspective. It's about right relationship with God. It's about knowing who we are. It's not about thinking lowly of ourselves. Too often we think that humility is thinking bad about ourselves. C.S. Lewis puts it well. He says this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's getting the right perspective. And he says, when, when we begin to think that humility is actually cloaking or downplaying who we are, he says, this is the result. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And he says, this is utter nonsense, right? And so you actually don't, you just still keep thinking about yourself. Because what's happening is when we try to downplay our our strengths or our abilities and make them seem like they're not so great, we are still stuck in measuring ourselves by the world's standards. We are still saying, actually, wealth, power, status, accomplishments, those are all the things that matter, so I'm going to downplay them, right? But that's not real humility. Real humility comes with a right relationship with God. And so David Wilkerson, he puts it really well. He says, a humble person... It's not one who thinks little of himself, hangs his head and says, I'm nothing. Rather, he is one who depends wholly on the Lord for everything, in every circumstance. Real humility is about right perspective. It's our recognition that it does not matter what your current worldly status is. It doesn't matter if you are in high circumstances or low circumstances. All of us are fully dependent on God for all things. That's that's the core of real humility. That's the core of real humility. And when we we fail to recognize this, we fall into all sorts of trouble, often known as pride. And that's what James is trying to address. And he says there's a root of the problem. He gets to the root of the problem. And he says the root of the problem is this. You adulterers. I told you, he doesn't mince words, right? You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives us, and he gives grace generously as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he likens this when we we get out of whack and we start to think I'm in control of my life or my status is the most important thing or what other people think of me, that's what matters. He likens this to adultery. He says, you have violated the relationship that you're supposed to be in with God. It's a matter of loyalty. It's a matter of allegiance. That's where humility really comes in. It's what are you loyal to? Because to be a friend, back then this term didn't just mean like you like the world. You know, he's not saying be hostile and don't like anything in the world. To be a friend meant that you were aligned in value and thought. It was often a lifelong commitment. You know, it was it was a big deal to say we are pursuing the same things we think the same things there was fidelity there was commitment and so he's saying when you align yourself with the world and you say I am I'm committed here and I value the same things and this is what I'm pursuing you make yourself an enemy of God because you are now acting hostile to the way to the way that God has ordered the world you are acting in opposition to how God wants you to live and he says God is very passionate And jealous, that word of God is passionate about the spirit he has placed in you. God is jealous about the spirit he has placed in you because God cares about the decisions you make. God has a preference for how we live. It's kind of like those of you who are parents, you know, like when your kids make decisions that you don't like, you aren't neutral to that. You're not like, oh, no big deal. It bothers you, right? Even though you're not in control of all the decisions they make, you have a desire for the way in which they would live. You have a desire for how they would contribute to society. God's desire is even greater. We were designed to be in, crea- in, in relationship with our creator. And when we unplug from that, all sorts of things go wrong. And he says, then God starts to oppose the way you live, meaning he stands against it because what you are pursuing is opposite of what he would have you pursue. And so God, God uh, loves the humble. God blesses the humble. But when we find ourselves being, being prideful, and what that really means is to have an exaggerated opinion of yourself, an exaggerated opinion of your righteousness, of your goodness, of your importance, and what that often leads to is disdain and scorn, disdain of other people and of other situations. And we start to think, I'm so much better than that. We start to measure ourselves against one another and say, like, well, at least I'm not that person. I'm so much better than that. And, and so God opposes that because that is not how God has intended us to live. And this is exactly what James is trying to address in this community that he's writing to because this community has aligned itself with the values of the world and it's starting to experience all of this infighting and division. And so he says, he says to this community, he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. And so this community, their perspective is all all off. Now. One thing that we have to keep in the back of our minds is these are followers of Jesus. He's not writing people who don't know Jesus. These are people who have committed their lives to Jesus, but the way they're living is totally askew. And so he shows what these signs of when we've aligned ourselves with the world, when we've become friends with the world and are living in opposition with God, there's signs that pop up in us. There's four things that he points out that are signs for them and for us that something's not right. Something's not right. The first sign that we see is jealousy. Is jealousy, and that's when we start to look around and we see what other people have, and we go, "Well, I should have that too." I don't know why they have that and I don't have that. Right? And he actually uses, he says this is the source of this is an evil desire, and the root of that that word is the root of our word for hedonism, and so this is like passions and lust. One person put it as like this this unhealthy craving. For that which we do not have. And when we are jealous, a couple things start to happen. We start to feel entitled, right? I deserve that. I deserve what everybody else has. And then we start to think that God is withholding from us. Well, I deserve that. And if God isn't giving it to me, then there's something wrong with God. And so we, the first sign that something's out of whack that that we've aligned ourselves with the world and not with God is jealousy the second sign he says then is fighting is fighting and he says to them you're scheming and killing and fighting and waging war james is you know he's dramatic in in this like you're killing each other but but what he means is you're harming one another you are hurting one another because you seem to think that you deserve what someone else has and so you whatever means necessary to get your own and and here's the thing about harming other people. Sometimes it's outright harm. Sometimes we harm other people physically, sometimes we harm them with our words and we rip people's reputations apart, and sometimes it's more subtle where we start to compete with people in this way they don't even know that we're having this competition with them. But but we start to think you your gain is my loss. You are my opponent. You are my enemy. And we get into this zero-sum thinking that anytime someone else benefits, it's my loss. There's only so much to go around. And so if you get something, it means I didn't get it. And that's not how God's economy works, but we start falling into that. And, and then one sign that you can really tell that you have become aligned with the world is you start to get withholding yourself and you start to get stingy and you start to say, well, I'm not sharing what I have because if I give you some, then I lose out. And so, so we start to fight with other people thinking, you are my enemy, your gain is my loss. And that then leads to self-dependence. And what we're talking about here is not being responsible. This is not like, oh, everyone's supposed to be responsible, right? You're supposed to be a responsible citizen and make contributions and do your part. That's not what this is about. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And what he means is you've closed yourself off from God. You start to think, you fall into this trap of thinking, actually, it's, the, the world helps those who help themselves. And so it's what I can do to secure myself. And the things that make me most secure are my bank account and my title and my retirement account and my home. And all the things that we go, I can provide that. And so we stop depending on God. We close ourselves off from God. And we start to think, it's me. I'm the one in control. And so I'm going to take care of me. The world helps those who help themselves. And we start to trust in our own ability to provide. And then lastly, we end up selfish. And, and he says, even when you do ask God, you don't get it because you're asking with all the wrong motives. Because we start to have this distorted view of what a relationship with God is. And we start to think, God is like a big ATM or a genie. And God's main role is to make me happy. That, and so if God is not giving me what I want, God is not holding up the end of the bargain that I agree to. Right? And so our relationship with God gets out of whack. And we start to think, I'm entitled To what i want and god is supposed to give it to me and he says these four things are a sign that you are aligned with the ways of the world That you've become a friend with the world and are in opposition with the way that god wants us to live but here's the question for us because remember i said james is writing to a group of jesus followers he's not writing to a bunch of people who don't know god and haven't committed their life to jesus he's writing to a group of jesus followers And we have to ask, why is it so much easier to align ourselves with the ways of the world? Why is it so much easier to be friends with the world than to allow God to guide our lives? Because if we're all honest, that's true. It's way easier because with the world, we start to feel like I have some control. I have a say. I get to dictate this because too often at the core of all of this, is fear. It's fear. It's fear that God isn't good or that God isn't going to give me good things or God doesn't want good things for me. Jane Meyer says we start to have the god of our worst fear. She says it like this, "When I see God as the god of my worst fear, I assume he ha- he only has requirements of me and will leave me completely alone to get the job done." I often hear I often when I hear Jesus calling, I hear only my worst fear asking far too much, and wanting to be appeased with burdensome, lonely labor. If we're honest, most of us struggle to trust God because God feels unpredictable, and sometimes God feels disappointing because there's something that we really wanted, or we thought God was going to promise that to us, and we didn't get it. And we go, well, I I don't I don't know how to follow you because I don't know where you're going to take me and I don't know how this is going to work out and I don't know what this is going to look like. I know how to, how to handle my life on my own. And so Jan Meyer says this about worst fears. She says, worst fears take many forms. God will not remember me. God will shame me for what I've been involved in. God will get my hopes up and then dash them. God will ask too much of me. God will leave me alone. We align ourselves with the world because we begin to believe that we have control over our lives. And let's be honest, right? We go back to the great reversal. How many of you would prefer to be rich in this world, right, than poor and trust that it's all going to work out, right? I know for me, I'm like, I, I love the great reversal. I don't really want to be on the, uh, the other end of it. I don't want to be on the, like, let's boast in your lowly status, you know, on your, on your elevated status eternally. You know, most of us, we, we would rather the security of this world. And so we get lulled into believing that we are in control of our lives. And we get lulled into believing that you are the master of your life and it takes something that knocks your life off kilter. Something that you go, I can't control this. Whether it's getting sick or a disappointment or a job loss or a relationship end. It's something where suddenly you go, I'm actually not in control. I'm not in control. And, and it's then that we have the opportunity to experience real humility. And this is, was true for my friends. So, One of my very best friends in in the whole world, his name is Nate and Nate and Marcy have been friends with Steve and I for 16 years now and Nate is a planner. I mean he's one of those people who has plans for his plans for his plans. He has lots of backup plans. In fact, when we play board games with Nate, we have a Nate rule because, you know, we love strategy games and we have a two-minute timer that Nate has to make his move within two minutes because he will literally play out every possibility. He's like, well, if you're going to do this, and I might do this, and you're like, just, it's not eternal, Nate. It's just a board game. You're going to forget who won by tomorrow morning, right? But he loves to plan, and he had a plan for his life. Nate knew how his life was going to go, and he was happy to share his plans with God and let God in on his plans. And Nate's been a follower of Jesus since he was very little, but he had all these plans, and god he wanted God to bless his plans, but they were his plans. And so Nate's first plan was he bought this house. You know, and it was this great deal of a house, and he was going to turn it into a rental property, and it was going to be their retirement house you know and he had all like good plans too like we're gonna let missionaries live here he had all sorts of ideas and then they bought the house and there was major structural work that needed to be done in the house way more money than they expected they thought okay well put that in and then they had all this these plans to convert it to be a multi-unit rental and the city did not approve his plans and so Nate's like duh my plan didn't work so that was one plan didn't work but then Nate found what he thought was going to be his dream job And so he took this job, and it was the perfect job. Everything was great. Everything was going to be wonderful until he started the job, and he realized he hated the work. He didn't like his boss, and it was terrible. And he was so... Miserable. So now he's stuck in this house that it didn't go to plan, and he's in this job that he doesn't like, and then the housing market crashes. right? And so Nate's house, is this, this is his retirement account, is now hundreds of thousands of dollars underwater. And that's never going to turn around. So now Nate's just devastated. But Nate has plans upon plans upon plans. So they short sell his house, and Nate finds a great job in California. Moves from Boston to California, Starts his job, everything's gonna work out, and then the company that he went to to work for had a national meltdown and he lost his job. And now Nate doesn't have a job, he doesn't have a house, his credit is shot. These are this is not his plan. Now he finds himself temping and he can't get can't get hired. And Nate is so angry at God. He is so angry because God is the God now of his worst fear. This is why I make plans. This is why I planned it out, because I didn't want to end up in this situation. How could you let this happen to me, God? Maybe you can relate to where Nate is, where Nate was in that moment. And in this dark period, it was re- it, you know, some of you, ha- this is your story, and some of you, this is the story of someone that you love. When you watch someone that you love walking through such a hard period, and you want to just fix it, and there's no easy fix, this dark period for Nate where he had to struggle What Nate really came to realize was he had aligned his whole life around the wrong expectations. He expected that he deserved certain things, and he began to see like he had become friends with the world, and he didn't even realize it because he would look at other people and say, well, if you have a fancy car, I should have a fancy car, and if you're getting ahead, I should get ahead, and then he'd start to be resentful, and he'd compete with people, and he stopped relying on God, but but he still expected God to meet all of his, his desires and his plans. And so Nate had to go through this experience where his whole life went off kilter for him to realize he had created the God of his worst fear. He had created the God of his worst fear because the real God, Jesus, Jesus wasn't about taking everything away from him. Jesus wasn't about making him miserable. Jesus wanted everything for him. Jesus wanted freedom and release and renewal, and transformation. But the only way to experience that freedom was through humility, through right perspective, through right relationship with God. Jan Meyer says it like this, God wants us, all of us. He wants everything for us, and asks everything of us, as he finds, restores, and leads our hearts. He asks us to leave our old ways, not just old habits, But the way we view life, the way we see, he asks us to drop our nets, to face our stories, to be misunderstood and even shamed by others, believing that the hidden reasons must be spectacular. See, Nate's healing didn't come because his circumstances changed. Nate's healing came because his perspective changed. And he began to realize that All of the expectations that I had aligned my life with, all the plans I had put in place, they were all because I valued the wrong things. I was looking at what this world values and not what God values. And what God values is a life transformed, is a heart transformed, is a person set free. That's what God wants for us. And God is willing to do anything in order to set us free. Real humility comes when we see that we are not in control of our lives and that the way that we're living when we do think that we're in control and we align ourselves with the values of the world actually is making us miserable it's making us unhappy because with the world the goalpost always keeps moving right where happiness is it's, when i get this when i get this position then i'll be happy nope i got that but now there's something else when i get this car i'll be happy when i get this house i'll be happy when i have these people who like me i'll be happy it's always moving the world is a moving target it makes us miserable. God wants to set us free. That's what Jesus is about. And so how do we actually obtain true humility, right perspective, right relationship with God? Lucky for us, James lays it out. He tells us this. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So there's four things that James says to do. The first is to submit. It's to submit. And what this means, it's a willing decision. It's a willing decision. It, it's voluntary. Because what it says is, I'm going to put myself in the right place. That I've taken the place of God, and I've thought that I'm in control of my life. And in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recognize the right order is that God is in control of my life. It does not matter what status I have in this world. Whether I am rich or poor, God is in control of my life. That, that is submission. Jane Meyer says it like this. Obedience is an ongoing invitation to relinquish control, but God wants our release, not our destruction. Hear that. God wants our release, not our destruction. Submission means to recognize that we're not in control, but it is to trust that when God is in control, God wants good things for you. God wants freedom for you. For Nate, what submission looked like was he was stuck in this temp job for a very long time with no prospect of getting hired or moving up. And Nate had to release his career path to God and all of his plans and trust, even though he couldn't see where it was going to end up, trust that God wanted good things for him. Submission is all about trust. Humility, at at the foundation of humility, is trust. The second step then, he says, is to resist. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, some of you, this might freak you out, right? Like maybe you're new to church and you're like, devil, what are we talking about? Well, in the scripture, it talks about forces of evil. We see evil at work and evil is in opposition to God. And the devil is often described as this, the tempter, the accuser, the father of lies, the ruler of the world. The the devil is described as the enemy of God. And I personally hold to the traditional view that there is an embodied form of evil that is working against the goodness of God. But wherever you land on that, what we can see is that there are forces in the world that are not good. There are decisions in the world that are not good. And what James says is to resist it. And what to resist means is to stand against. And now what he doesn't say is you're now going to be in this epic battle and you're going to be fighting evil. He says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you right? And and earlier in the book, he says, flee from temptation, run away from temptation. And so part of what this looks like is if you are in a situation that makes it very hard for you to live the way that God wants you to live, or if there's behaviors or practices that make it difficult for you, you're supposed to get yourself out of that situation. You're supposed to remove yourself from that, whether that's a relationship or a context to, to, to flee from it. But also when we see Jesus confront the forces of evil in in the Gospels, it's never a battle. Jesus just says, be gone, and they're gone. See, evil holds no power in comparison to the power of Jesus. And so what James is saying is, choose to live differently in this world. You have the power to live the way God wants you to live. Evil has no power over you. You can choose goodness. You can choose to be moral in an immoral world. You can choose to follow God and align yourself with God and not live in opposition with God. You have the power to do that. It means consistently checking our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. Is this in line with God or not? And so for Nate, part of that looked like him recognizing there are certain conversations that he couldn't have because he would start to feel bitter and he would start to feel entitled There were certain things that he had to stop looking at or stop participating in because he realized that just makes me begin to feel like it aligns me with the world and reminds me of the values of the world, right? And so for you, it might be a situation that you need to get yourself out of. The third step, the third step is to draw near. And James says, draw near to God. And this means to intentionally move towards God. It is an intentional action. It's a decision that you're making. Right? and and so it's saying i'm going to pursue god i'm going to pursue a relationship with god and it comes with a promise that when you draw near to god god is ready and waiting to draw near to you god is desiring relationship with you you are you were designed to be in relationship with your creator and so god is ready to extend friendship and love to you so when we choose to draw near God is ready to draw near to us. And so for Nate, this didn't mean reading his Bible more and praying. He already did that. What it meant for Nate was actually he went and saw a Christian counselor. And in that, Nate had to do some really deep spiritual soul work to realize all of the resentment he had towards God and the anger he had and the fear that he had in trusting and also the longing he had to be in relationship with God Drawing near to God isn't a formula. Drawing near to God is a desire. But it's starting to move towards God, trusting and knowing. God is ready to move towards you. God is ready to meet you and be in relationship with you. And the last thing he says is to repent. And he draws this picture of repentance. He says, you know, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. And hands were given, they were used to provide offerings. And he's saying, let your outward and your inward reality match. Don't be double-minded. Don't be jealous. Don't be a slave to sin. You know, and then he says to mourn and grieve and wail. And what he means here, you know, repentance. Repentance, too often we think repentance means stop doing bad things. Don't do bad things. But repentance means to turn towards something. The image I always give is if you're looking over here, something shiny goes off over here, you're going to turn towards it and look at it. That's what it means. So God is saying turn towards God. But part of that, part of the mourning, is looking at the state of your life, where it is right now, and if you continue down the path without God, where you're going to end up. That's what we mourn, is to say, I have lived a way that is not pleasing to you. I've lived in opposition to you. I have done what is not right. And if I keep this up, it's not going to go well for me. That's what we mourn, right? And there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. See, conviction, that's, that's godly sorrow. There's hope with conviction. God convicts us to say, this is not what's best for you. This is not what's right for you. This is not what I have for you. I have more for you. I want release and freedom for you. Conviction leads us to hope. Condemnation is all about shame. Condemnation says you're not good enough, you're not doing it good enough, and you better fix yourself. You better get it right. right? And so often with condemnation, there's disgust that comes with it and an effort on our own to fix ourselves. And again, Jan Meyer says it like this, when we, get, when we grieve over our sin and admit our need for the Holy Spirit's work to produce the change we cannot produce on our own, when we are disgusted with ourselves, we're just ticked that we couldn't come up with a way to do it right, to please God, to change. Our first inclination when caught in sin is to feel ashamed and humiliated rather than sad. See, true repentance is about feeling sad over our sin. And so for Nate, for Nate, this was coming to the realization of if I continue on this path, I am making myself miserable, and I will continue to make myself miserable, and I stopped being dependent on God, and I had these selfish desires, and now I need to turn towards God and change my mind and change my ways and allow God to do a work in my life, to allow God to change me, because that's what God wants to do. He's not asking you to fix yourself. He wants to heal you. And so as we come to the close of this reality check series, it's a good moment to just take an inventory of what's going on in our heart, to have a reality check. Say, how have you ordered your life? When we look at the ways of the world, do you see jealousy in your life? Do you see yourself looking around and going, I deserve that, and God isn't giving me what I deserve, and I deserve more? Do we see ourselves fighting in that we start to see other people as our enemies or we start to say, I have to hold on to mine because if I give you some, then I get less. Have you become so self-dependent that you've closed yourself off to God and you believe that it's all up to you, that you make it happen and so you have to hold on to everything that you're in control of? And Have you, have you gotten off track with your relationship with God where you've started to think, I deserve God to give me things? That's that's what this is about, and God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. And if so, the remedy is here for us. And so maybe, maybe your step today is submission. And it's that, the first step of recognizing, I am not in control, God. I have been trying to live my life as if I'm in control. I have all my plans, and I need to surrender my plans to you. And I'm afraid, because I'm afraid you're the God of my worst fear— but I have to trust that you want my release. That's what you really want for me. Or maybe, maybe for you today, it's not it's not surrender, but it's resistance. Maybe it's you've been in a situation that you need to get yourself out of. Or maybe you've thought I'm powerless to this, but you're not. And so it's it's that resisting temptation. It is fleeing from a situation that is not bringing out the best in you. Maybe, maybe for you today, it's drawing near to God. Maybe you've gotten so distant from God that you've forgotten what it means to be in relationship with God, to intentionally pursue that relationship. And I want to say, one of the best ways to start is right here on Sunday morning, is to draw near right here. You are welcome to every week we would love to have you here every week because that's a great place to start we've done a lot of the work for you you know we we read the word and we do the prayer and we do the worship and so if you are feeling distant from God start here and and grow from there grow into relationship learn how to read your Bible learn how to pray but but start here and maybe for some of you you know it's it's repentance Not condemnation, not you're so bad and go fix yourself, but it's truly saying, God, you want to do a healing in me, and I'm open to that, Lord. Whatever you want to set free in me, the way I have been living is not the way you want me to live. Help me to turn towards you. And I want to take a moment right now because there's some of you here today who have never really made that decision to be in relationship with God. And maybe you've been afraid, and you think, God is the God of your worst fear. God won't love me. God won't accept me. I'm too far away. I've messed up my life too much. There's no, or God's going to come in and make everything bad. And if you feel far from God today, I want you to hear that getting close to God is the easiest thing that there is. James is right when he says, draw near because God is ready and waiting to draw near to you. God wants to be in a friendship with you, in a relationship with you. And God wants everything for you, but it requires everything of you. It is surrendering your life to say, you are the master of my life, God. But I say it all the time. I got it from Andy Stanley, and I think it's the best line around. He says, Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. And so if you are looking for a way to make life better and get better at life, and you haven't invited Jesus into your life, I want to give you a moment now to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite everyone to just close your eyes, bow your heads. And if that's you, I'm not going to call out your name, I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to offer us a prayer in just a moment. But if that's you, if you want to draw near to God this morning, I'm going to ask you to just put your hand up. Just go ahead and raise your hand up, and we're going to pray for you. I see that hand, and I see that hand, and I see these hands, and I see that hand. If you want to decide for Jesus today, I see that hand over there. You can just slip your hand right up. Okay, okay. Now, you can open your eyes. We had a lot of hands go up today, guys. So I want to give us an opportunity to pray. And whether this is your first time praying this prayer Or maybe you've prayed this prayer before, but you need to renew it. I'm gonna pray this for us. Okay? And and you are you are welcome to say it along quietly to yourself or not. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross to rescue me from sin and death and to restore me to life, life, and more life. I choose now to turn from my sins my self-centeredness, my brokenness in every part of my life that does not please you. I choose you. I give myself to you. I receive your forgiveness and ask you to take your rightful place in my life as my Savior and Lord. Come reign in my heart. Fill me with your love and your life and help me to become a person who is truly loving, a person like you. Restore me, Jesus, Live in me, love through me. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Can you hear an amen? All right. There are some people here who made the best decision of their life today. They chose to draw close to God and invite Jesus into their heart. I just want to take a moment and let's celebrate that. And if that was you, if that was you today and you made that decision, there's two things I want to tell you about. One, there's a card in your program, and it says, I have decided. And I know sometimes we feel embarrassed when we make this decision. We want to keep it private, but we want to help you. We want to help you on that journey with Jesus. And so you can take that card and fill it out and bring it to our welcome area. We have a a gift to help you get started in your relationship with Jesus. And so don't leave here today if you made that decision and not let us know, because we want to celebrate that with you. And also, if you made that decision today, or maybe you didn't put your hand up, but you're still, you're wondering who Jesus is and you want to know more, join us for Alpha. You can, it doesn't matter if you, sh- if you signed up or not, you can show up tonight. We have a place for you in Alpha. We just started last week. It goes for the next nine weeks. We were talking about the basics of the Christian faith and what it means to believe and who Jesus is. Tonight, we're going to be talking about why did Jesus die? Why, why is that even part of our belief? If you are curious and you have questions you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus join us tonight is at 5 30 right back here we have dinner it's going to be great awesome conversation you are welcomed you are welcomed at Alpha tonight okay so we're going to stand up now and we're going to respond in worship and I love this song because it tells the story of what God has done how God has drawn near to us to set us free